Turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. Thank you, Mary. Appreciate all of our musicians at this church. Jonah chapter 1. Welcome. If this is your first time, like I said before, I'm so glad that you're here. You picked a good morning to be here. (laughs) We are um, on week 2 of a series in the book of Jonah. And together... We are discovering more and more the character of God, who he is, and we're using the story of Jonah, the person of Jonah, as a mirror to see ourselves within the story of Jonah. And remember, uh, as we read the story of Jonah, Jonah is the example of what not to do. He's an anti-hero. We root for prophets like Samuel and Elijah, but when we look at the prophet Jonah and his life, he runs from God. He runs from the call of God, and he's an example of what not to do. But we can all see a little bit of ourselves inside the person of Jonah. Last week, we talked about how Jonah disobeyed God's command. We didn't get very far. We only read verses 1 through 3. We're going to get a little farther today. And uh, we talked about how he ran from God's command to go to Nineveh, which is depicted in the Bible, it associates Nineveh with the city of Babylon. And the city of Babylon is the epitome of evil and corruption. And uh, he he decides not to go to Nineveh, and he runs instead, he boards a ship to Tarshish. And we talked last week about how Tarshish is, um, is this symbol of wealth and pagan worship, idolatry. But it is a place where people go to pursue pleasure and, and, uh, and the things that their flesh desires. And so Jonah, he ignores the call of God and instead runs away to Tarshish, this exotic and wealthy land. And Jonah is God's prophet that does ex- the exact opposite of what you would expect from a prophet of Yahweh. And so in this next scene that we're going to read, he finds himself in a storm on a ship filled with pagan sailors who worship different gods. And so if you're with me, we're going to start at verse 3. And we're gonna, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to break up this next scene uh, of the storm into little segments. And I'm going to add a little bit of co- commentary as we go through this next scene. Are you with me? Here we go, verse 3 through 5. It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. That Hebrew word for hurled literally is the imagery of throwing something like a spear And so the Lord hurls, hurls a great wind upon the sea, and there's a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone, what? Down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. Do you see... The downward progression of Jonah's steps. That first he goes down to Joppa. And then he goes down into the ship. And then he's down into the inner parts of the ship. And then he falls down into a sleep. And later he falls down into the sea before he's swallowed up by a great fish. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a storm before, but I remember a time as a kid, uh, it, it, it wasn't that, it probably wasn't that bad, but at the time it, it was, it was quite the storm. My dad inherited a, a small lake boat from his father-in-law and he decided, you don't take late lake boats out on the ocean, but we're the Barnes family. We do it anyway. And we take this, my dad decides to take my, my two siblings and I on this, uh, on this lake boat out in the ocean. And uh, it starts off nice enough, but we get out there, I don't know, a couple miles away from shore, and the wind suddenly picks up. And now we're encountering these big old swells of these waves, and this flat bottom boat is going up the waves and smacking down at the bottom, going up and smacking down. And I can look at my dad's face. He's white-knuckling the wheel of this boat, and he's thinking he's about to... He, he just killed all three of his kids, taking them out on this boat. My sister is sitting next to him laughing hysterically. She's having the time of her life. And uh, she trusts dad. My brother is crying because he's terrified in this moment. He doesn't know what is happening. And I get seasick, so I am feeding the fish. I'm yakking, yakking over the side of the boat. And this is how it was all the way home. Now, you may not be able to identify with a physical storm, but we can all relate to metaphorical storms that we encounter through life. Jonah had sinned against God. And this word sin, uh, a lot of people don't like to talk about this word, but sin is simply disobedience to God. And we can all relate to Jonah's flight from the Lord because we've all disobeyed God at one point in our life. And this downward regression into the inner parts of the ship, this is exactly how we find ourselves in storms that are related to our sin. First, Jonah is confronted with a small decision. He walks outside of his door and he has to decide, do I go left or do I go right? And then he finds himself down in Joppa. And before he knows it, he's putting a foot on the wood of the ship and he's going into the ship and he finds himself at sea. You see, uh, it, it, it's, it's like Jonah is being lulled to sleep in his sin. He falls asleep, I'm sure, to escape the guilt of what he's doing. And there's this picture of him almost being lulled to sleep, going down and down and down and down, finally falling into a a strong sleep. And there's a storm raging outside of the ship. But Jonah, he's unaware of what is happening. He's vulnerable to what's happening. And he's apathetic. He doesn't care what's going on around him. You see, storms that are related to our disobedience, they never appear out of thin air. You don't just suddenly find yourself in the midst of a storm. Rather, it's like this. It's one small decision after another. One little bad choice after another until we're lulled to sleep while the enemy is trying to take your life. There's a storm that might be raging all around you and you, the enemy doesn't want you to know what's going on. He wants to put you to sleep and make you think that everything's okay. Just stay in the ship. Just disregard what is happening all around you. He's trying to put you to sleep. This is a quote by Timothy Keller. He said this, every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. This is one of the greatest themes in the Old Testament wisdom literature, especially in the book of Proverbs. The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. 
We cannot treat our bodies indifferently and still expect to have good health. We can't treat people different, indifferently and expect to maintain their friendship with us. We can't put our own selfish interests ahead of the common good and still have a functioning society. And in the same way, you cannot expect to experience God's peace and his hope and his joy in your life if you are living in disobedience, if you're walking the wrong way. Jonah is in a storm because of his own sin, but the sailors are in the same storm and they didn't do anything wrong. This is not their fault. You see, some storms are attached to our sin, what we do, the disobedience to God that we carry. And other storms are attached to the sinful world that we live in because it's still filled with brokenness. And Jesus is restoring the earth back to its original design that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden. And he's using his church to do it. But for now, we live in a broken world. There's still war. There's still poverty. There's still chaos. There's still sickness. We live in a broken world that is being restored. And like we see as we read further, we learn that God can use storms to lead people into a more genuine faith like he does with these sailors. You see, when storms come into our lives, whether it's a consequence of our wrongdoing or not, Christians, we have the hope. This is the encouraging news is that God can use storms for your good. We, we read in Romans 8, 28, that God does all things for the good. He works all things for the good of those who love him. And there's this paradox in the Bible that while sin increases, God's grace increases all the more. That you cannot outrun God. The farther you try to escape, the farther you go on the ship to Tarshish, the farther down into the ship you go, God's mercy is chasing after you. He's running after you because he is that good. He works all things for the good of those who love him. All throughout scripture. We see pictures of men and women who encounter storms in life, but ultimately leads them to a better place. Abraham is an example of that. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you the father of nations. You're going to have a multitude of descendants. But Abraham spends years wandering with apparently unfulfilled promises. He, he spends years wandering aimlessly in the wilderness until finally he's given a son, Isaac, who's the son of God's promise. Joseph is a perfect example of this. It's a story of how God turns an arrogant, spoiled teenager into a man of character by allowing him to experience the pit and to experience the prison, to experience the storm so that he could save the lives of countless people. Moses, Moses was a fugitive and he wandered the desert for 40 years tending his father-in-law's sheep before God called him to Egypt and lead the Israelites. Moses went through storms as well. And God uses storms in our life to grow us. Tim Keller also says this. The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of our sin. But it does teach that for Christians, every difficulty can help reduce the power of sin over our hearts. Storms can wake us up to truths that we would otherwise never see. Storms can develop faith, hope, love, patience, humility, and self-control in us that nothing else can. Think of all the testimonies that you've ever heard. There's an, an innumerable amount of people that have testified that they found faith in Christ and they found eternal life only because of some great storm that drove them to the feet of Jesus. Many people 
they, they, they awake to the mercy of God only when they hit rock bottom. Does anybody know somebody in your life who's like that? No matter how much you tell them about God's goodness, no matter how much you tell them about his love, they just won't listen. But when they hit rock bottom and there's nowhere to turn but up, that is God's strange way of delivering his mercy to them, of showing his grace to them, saying, I am going to lead you out of this pit, but first you've got to get to the bottom. You've got to understand that you are in need of a savior. When I look back on my own life, I recognize that the moments that I've been closest to God are the moments that I feel like everything's unraveling. Everything is coming apart. Or I'm experiencing fear and anxiety, and I'm clinging tightly to God. And those moments of storms and chaos, those are the moments that I hold so tightly to my Jesus. Let's continue reading in verse 6. It says this, So the captain came and said to Jonah, What do you mean? You sleeper, or what are you doing, you sleeper? He says, arise, call to your God. That Hebrew word is Elohim. It means little g God. Whatever God you worship, Jonah, call out to that God. Call out to Elohim. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and that we may not perish. These sailors probably spent years and years on the sea, and they've never encountered such a violent storm as this. The story makes it clear that these sailors are keenly aware that something supernatural is happening to them. That this is not just an ordinary storm. And so they begin to call out to their gods. And they act in a commendable fashion. They begin to lighten the ship. They begin to call out for help. They recognize that the storm is divine. And they recognize that it's probably the result of someone's sin on board. As we're going to read further. So they each call out to their gods. And get this. The captain comes to Jonah. And he commands him to arise and call out to your God. He says, arise and call. And this is the same command that God gives to Jonah in verse 2. God tells Jonah, arise. Go to the city of Nineveh and call out against their evil. Arise, Jonah, and call out. And Jonah refuses to do that. But Jonah awakes from a nap to hear the words of God in this pagan's mouth, giving him the same command that God had given him at the beginning of the story. Instead of the prophet pointing unbelievers to God, it's the unbelievers who point the prophet to God. Because this story is upside down and backwards. It's supposed to be ironic. It's supposed to be like that. It's the unbelievers who are doing something about the storm. They're the ones who are concerned for the well-being of everyone. They're the ones on the move on top of the deck. And Jonah is doing nothing. He could care less about their lives. He is the one whose sin is putting everyone else at risk. Here's the implication in this part. You would be wrong to assume that your sin affects only you. It doesn't affect only you. Sin does not only cause storms in your life. It will also bring storms to others. Your family, your family is affected by your sin. Think of what addiction or infidelity does inside of a family. It it affects the whole family. Your workplace can be affected by sin. Think about what one employee's dishonesty does to the business. Your sin can bring storms to your friendships. Sin does not only cause storms in your life, it also brings storms to others. 
Christians and unbelievers, we are in the same boat, metaphorically speaking. We are all in the same boat together, on earth together, and it is the followers of Jesus who are responsible for displaying what repentance and compassion towards others looks like. But the story of Jonah is filled with these upside-down ironies. So it's the unbelievers in this story who respond appropriately. Let's keep reading. Very interesting part right here, starting at verse 7. It says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. That word evil is the Hebrew word ra, and it's the same word that is used all throughout this story when God says the evil of Nineveh, the raw of Nineveh has come up before me. The bad of Nineveh has come up before me. So it is Jonah now who's bringing evil upon others. At the beginning of the story, God is aware that Nineveh is bringing evil upon innocent upon the innocent he's concerned for the innocent in in Nineveh but here we have a picture of the prophet of God who has brought evil upon innocent sailors it says this so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah and they said to him tell us on whose account this raw this evil has come upon us what is your occupation where do you come from what is your country and what people are you And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, what is this that you have done? What have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. The sailors, they're so aware that this storm is divine it's a divine response for someone's sin, so they decide to cast lots. I think this is an interesting thing that they do. This is not the first time, or the, it's not the only time that we see people casting lots in Scripture. And one of the central themes of Jonah includes the idea of God's sovereignty, that he has the power and the wisdom and the authority to do anything he chooses within his creation. God called Jonah to Nineveh, And he uses Jonah regardless of him being resistant and lacking compassion towards others. And the casting of lots is yet another example of how nothing happens by chance. That God is aware of what is to come and he has full power over the future. He is sovereign. He he has control over the storm. He has control over nature. He has control over the casting of lots. He has control over the fate of Nineveh and the fate of the men on this boat. And when the lot falls to Jonah, the others immediately ask him a series of questions. They say, what do you do for a living? What's your occupation? Jonah is a prophet. They ask him, where where are you born? Where, Where are you from? What country do you come from? What people do you belong to? They're essentially asking Jonah, who are you? And despite the variety of questions, they're really just asking Jonah one thing. They're not asking him, who are you? But they're really asking, whose are you? Who do you belong to? What God do you fear? We want to know what God is causing this to happen. What God is causing the storm on the the sea? Who has hurled this upon us? Whose are you, Jonah? Tim Keller also said this. The sailors knew that identity is always rooted in the things we look toward to save us. 
the things to which we give ultimate allegiance. To ask who are you is to ask whose are you. To know who you are is to know what you have given yourself to, what controls you, and what you most fundamentally trust. Ask yourself this morning, what or who do I look towards to save me when I'm in a storm? Where do I look when I'm in a storm? Do I look to money? Do I think having more wealth will save me from the debt that I'm in, the poverty that I'm in? Is it a relationship that you think will save you? Do you rely on someone else for your self-worth, for your affirmation, for your approval in life? Do you feel worthless until somebody in your life who you respect, whether it be a parent or a spouse or a friend or a mentor comes to you and they give you affirmation? Is it the fact that your parents were Christians and you grew up in a Christian home? So I'm good. I'm safe. My parents were Christians. It just runs in the family. What do you look to to save you? How would you respond if I asked you who you are? Who are you? You might say, well, I'm a farmer or I'm a teacher. I'm a businessman or a businesswoman. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I would tell you I'm a pastor. But even that's the wrong answer. That's not at the fundamental level of my being. Those things are not who you are. Or would you say, I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the son of God who died and rose again to save the world from their sin. And he's coming again. He's filled me with the Holy Spirit to bring the good news of him to the rest of the world. Whose are you? What do you look to to save you? What do you most fundamentally trust? And here we read about Jonah's response. And I believe Jonah gives a pretty shallow response. I don't think it's coincidence that the writer of Jonah says that he answered with his ethnicity first. He said, I'm a Hebrew. And many Jews believed at the time, many Jews still believe today, that they're going to receive salvation simply because they're Jewish, they're descendants of Abraham. But the Bible talks about The fact that those of us who aren't Jewish have been grafted into the family of God. We are a family of faith. It is not your bloodline that saves you, but it is is faith in Jesus that saves you. Here's the unfortunate thing. Is that many Christians today, they have shallow faith that results in shallow compassion towards others. Their relationship with God through Christ has not gone, gone deep enough into their heart. And just as in Jonah's life, God in his love is not their identity's most fundamental layer. This is who we are at our core. We are people who are loved by God, and we are called to love others in the same way. That is who we are. And that should be the most fundamental part of our identity. But Jonah tells them that he is a Hebrew, and then... He mentions, I fear Yahweh. And this is the first time that we hear mention, or that that, that the sailors hear mention of God's real name. Yahweh is the personal name of God. And oftentimes when you read scripture, when it says the word Lord, that is the personal name 
Yahweh. And Jonah tells the sailors, I serve, I fear Yahweh. He says, the one who made the sea and the dry land. And let me tell you, that's exactly the God they need right now, right? The one who made the sea, the one who can get them to dry land. That's the God that they need. And then the text says that after they hear this from Jonah, they hear the name of God, who it is that has caused this storm. They hear the name of God. They hear that Jonah has has disobeyed him and has run away. And it says that they were exceedingly fearful. Now we know. Now we know who's in control. And they say, what have you done? What are you doing? Again, another picture of how these pagan sailors who are unbelievers, they are more right-minded than Jonah. Jonah is is disobeying the one true God who made the sea and the dry land, and the pagans are, are, are sane enough to go, what are you doing? Why would you run? Why would you do this? You can't escape this God. There's nothing you can do against this God. Let's keep going. We're going to read the rest of this scene all the way down to verse 16. Starting at verse 11, it says this. And then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, here's what the men do. The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, Yahweh. They said, oh, Yahweh, get this. They're no longer calling him Elohim, little G God. They know the name of God. Yahweh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men, what did they do? They feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They became believers. The sailors want to know how to fix this, and Jonah offers his life. And we are intentionally left to wonder about Jonah's motives in offering his life. Was Jonah being noble and sacrificial? In order to save the lives of the sailors. Or was this death Jonah's final escape from God? I think it's the latter. Because Jonah has yet to repent. He has yet to turn and do what God says. And instead of listening to what God says and doing what God says and repenting for his sin. He says just let's get this over with. I'm going to take this with me to the grave. He was so callous and hardened in his heart. He had stepped so many times in the wrong direction that he could not see how calloused and how hardened his heart has became. And he said, I'm taking this sin to the grave. Just kill me. Throw me over the boat. But regardless of Jonah's motives, we're still left with this picture of a prophet offering his life. It's a familiar picture, isn't it? A familiar portrait of a prophet who offers his life to save others. However, the difference between this prophet and Jesus is that this prophet is guilty of the sin that he's about to pay the price for. Whereas Jesus offered himself on the cross 
for the salvation of the world while he was without sin. He hadn't done anything wrong. And notice the sailor's response to Jonah's request. Jonah says, just let's get it over with. Throw me in the water. Toss me overboard. It says that they row even harder in an attempt to save themselves. But the harder they row, the, the harder they row, the harder they struggle, the greater the storm becomes in their life. I think this is such a relatable image to how people try to save themselves by working hard and ignoring the sacrifice of Jesus. I've had so many conversations with people that I ask them about, where where do you think you're going to go when you die? And they say, well, I think that when I stand before God in heaven, he's going to weigh the good things that I've done with the bad things. And my good things will outweigh the bad things, and he'll let me in because of all the good things that I've done. And sometimes we do this. We say, if I'm just going to be a better person, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to maybe start volunteering somewhere. I'll start reading my Bible more. I'll start praying more. Maybe, maybe God will love me more if I try harder and good things will begin to happen to me. I'm just going to be a better person. I'm going to row as hard as I can. I'm just going to go for it. But does that save the sailors in the story? No. In fact, the storm becomes greater when they do that. There's this unique phrase that occurs in verse 14. The sailors call out to Yahweh. They don't call him Elohim anymore. And they ask Yahweh, they say this phrase, they say, they ask not to lay on us this man's innocent blood. The innocent blood. Was Jonah innocent? No. But the sailors don't want God to charge them with the murder of this prophet. They also say, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And this word please, it's a kind of a, a bad uh, translation for us because we think of the word please as it's something that makes us happy. Uh, but, but when we see please, like in Isaiah 53, where it says it pleased God to crush Jesus or it pleased God to crush the suffering servant. As we read in Isaiah 53, that word please literally means that, that, that God wanted this to happen, that, that what God wanted to happen or is happening is coming to pass. And so the, the, the sailors are saying, Lord, you threw this storm upon us to, they think you, you did this to kill this man. And so we're, they think God must want Jonah dead since he sent the storm after him. So they don't want to, they don't want responsibility in participating in what God is going to use them to accomplish. You wanted this guy dead So we're just going to participate in what you wanted in the first place. We're going to toss him overboard, but don't hold us accountable for this man's life. Because we're just doing what 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 you think is pleasing you. There's another pagan who is Roman that we read about in the New Testament that didn't want to be held accountable for a man's innocent blood. It was Pilate who was the governor of the district that they were in. And he thought that Jesus shouldn't die. And when the crowd asked to crucify Jesus, Matthew 27, 24 says this. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands for the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. I'm innocent of this man's blood. Again, it's just another picture Jesus later on uh, describes, he, he, makes a, he, he, he makes an allusion straight to Jonah where he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. 
And Jesus is constantly alluding himself to John. And we can see pictures of Jesus in the story. Do you see it? Do you see it? The sailors think they're killing Jonah by throwing him into the water. And as they do this, as they toss Jonah into the sea to drown, suddenly the storm subsides. And they're all filled with great fear. Did you notice that while Jonah is descending into death, the sailors are ascending to salvation? Jonah is going down to Joppa, down into the ship, and now he's going down into the depths of the sea. And the sailors have their own progression, and it's emphasized with the use of the word fear. Verse 5 says that when the storm arose, the sailors had great fear of the storm. Verse 10 says, uh, verse 10 says that they had exceedingly great fear of Jonah's response. When Jonah tells them who he serves, they have exceedingly great fear. It's this progression of fear. They're afraid of the storm. They have great fear. They have exceedingly great fear when Jonah tells them who he serves. And now, after the storm is silence, and when everything is still, in verse 16, it says that they feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they made vows to him. They believe in Yahweh. They become believers in this moment. And we know that this was not a foxhole conversion. Foxhole conversion, what I mean by that is it's this picture of a soldier in the trenches with bullets flying over his head. And he's just buckled down with his rifle saying, God, if you get me out of here, I swear I'll never say another curse word. I'll never smoke again. I'll never, I'll never look at anything bad. I swear if you just get me out of this, I'll do whatever you take. I'll, I'll do whatever you say. And then the bullets stop and he stands up and he goes, wow, that was a close one. Who wants to go to the bar? That's a foxhole conversion. But these sailors are not having a foxhole conversion because they do not make vows to God in the midst of the storm. They make them to God after the storm, after they're already saved. It says that they vowed vows to the Lord. They're making this serious commitment to Yahweh in this moment. It's a genuine response to God's mercy over them. Ironically, here's the funny thing. God is accomplishing through Jonah... What he sent him to Nineveh to accomplish in the first place. To bring salvation and mercy to the pagans. But he's doing it all backwards. It's this idea of God's sovereignty once again. That God is accomplishing what he set out to accomplish. Regardless of what Jonah's doing. And it's through the storm caused by Jonah's sin. And it's in response to the sacrifice of the one man. That Jesus brings salvation to these sailors. I'm going to ask Mary to come up as we close this morning. You know, the story of Jonah is the story of Jesus that is, that is woven throughout all of the Bible. The salvation that was offered first to the descendants of Abraham was rejected by many of them. They became resistant to God's plan, just like Jonah did. So what did God do when the Jews rejected God's promise? He extended that promise to the Gentiles. Hallelujah. That's you and me. If you aren't Jewish, you're a Gentile. Congratulations. And God extends his his promise of salvation. And he grafted us into his family because it was first rejected by people who were resistant and disobedient and didn't believe him. 
we can see ourselves in the person of Jonah, but we can also see ourselves in the sailors who are caught in a storm and they're rowing hard to save themselves. But God has offered salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus. And when you receive that sacrifice by repenting and worshiping him alone, he calms the storm of sin inside of you. He brings peace where there's chaos. As we close this morning, I want to offer an invitation to salvation this morning. Maybe you can identify with these sailors. Maybe you, you can identify with just trying as hard as you can to be better, to do better, and it just feels like you get nowhere. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many things you change in your calendar, no matter how many good things you're doing, you're still left with this feeling of guilt and shame and feeling unworthy and feeling like you can't have a good relationship with God and you don't hear his voice and you're wondering, God, where are you? Can I tell you it's through the sacrifice of Jesus that you experience his peace. That storm will only cease when you believe in what Jesus did for you. This is God's mercy. This is God's goodness that he uses this storm by the way, Jonah's story doesn't end here, does it? But God is merciful even to the disobedient prophet. He sends a fish to swallow him to save him. We're going to continue this story. But God is merciful to every person in this story. He's merciful to the disobedient one who runs away. He's merciful to the unbelieving sailors who are caught in a storm. He's merciful to a great city of evil. And he shows his mercy to all of them when they repent and they turn back to the Lord. So this morning, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? There is an invitation for you to receive God's mercy, to experience his goodness. There's a truth that you have to understand, and that is that he loves you so much that he bankrupt heaven. He loved you so much that he gave everything he had. He poured out the most precious thing that he had, his only son, Jesus, to die for you because he loves you so much. And when you say yes to that, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9 says you will be saved. So this morning, if there's anyone here who has never said yes to the person of Jesus and you say this morning, I'm, I'm done running. Would you just raise your hand so I could see it? Lift it high. Praise God. Anybody else? Any other hands in the room? Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Your mercy is new every morning. God, your mercy is so good. It's so sweet, so compassionate. slow to anger. You're abounding in love. Would you all repeat after me as we pray this? Dear Jesus, I give you everything I have. I repent for the things in my life that have caused me to run away. The things that have distant, I've distanced myself from you with. Turn to you, Jesus, 
I confess that you are Lord. You are the only one who can save me. Now fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to live a life that you've called me to live. I thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Would you stand with me, church? Can we give God one last clap offering? Tell him how much we love him. Jesus, we love you. We love you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. God, God is on the move. He's doing something, church, and I want to be part of it. I want to be part of what God is doing. Hey, one last invitation. If if you're new here and uh, we haven't met, I'd, I'd love to invite you to grow class. It's going to happen in about 10 or 15 minutes. You can make your way over to the cafe, grab yourself a muffin, some coffee. We'll set up a table in there, and I'll be in there in a moment. Uh, we'll spend about 45 minutes getting to know one another. So I invite you, come to grow class if you haven't been to grow class. Bless you. We'll see you next week.